0: Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Please read with me the verses in bold. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, Grace Sacramento. Good morning. Uh, my name is Stephen Mockford, as Pastor Daniel mentioned, and I'm one of the elders here. And uh, yeah, really excited to be able to. Uh, go through this passage with you guys. If uh, It is January 1st, so if your New Year's resolution was to read the Bible every day this year, so far so good. Uh, we actually did that for you. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we're going to be looking at this passage together and uh, lo- exploring um, what Jesus has to say, not only to this lawyer, but also to us this morning. And so a little bit about me, um, something that maybe some of you know about me, some of you might not, is that I, I really enjoy, I love Playing games. I actually got to play a little bit yesterday uh, on New Year's Eve with some friends. And so as a kid, I just remember I would play lots of card games with my family. I enjoyed classic board games with my brother. I really got into puzzles. Uh, I just loved um, playing these things and, and using my mind to think through, like, how to win, how to, how to solve the puzzle, things like that. And so oftentimes when, for my family, things like Christmas, things like New Year's were actually is a time, even after we, my brother and I had grown up and left home, when we were back home, it's like, okay, well, we got to make sure that we play cards tonight. One of these nights is going to be just playing cards. Uh, and so it was just a time to look forward to get together with others and to play. And so even now as an adult, I still enjoy playing cards. I enjoy word games. I like board games. But really my favorite games always involve strategy. I love trying to think several moves ahead trying to infer what my opponent is going to do, and trying to find a sneaky way to win before they even realized that I was going to do that. <laughs> now, strangely, I don't enjoy chess, which feels like that would like, check all those boxes, but I don't. But uh, I do enjoy strategy games. But I will say, games also bring out my competitive side uh, because I love playing games, but I also hate losing. When I was little, it was not uncommon for our family game nights to end in tears because, you know, I didn't really know how to play or I couldn't hold all the cards in my small hands or uh, whatever it was. And, uh, and so things would go wrong, and I would end up in tears. And honestly, yeah, even now, as an adult, I don't, I don't generally cry at the end of games. Um, <laughs> but I, I do often, I am tempted to just replay games in my head after I lose, and thinking, you know, what did I do wrong? Is there something that if I could just redo that one move, would that have made a difference? Um, maybe it was, you know, it's usually the card's fault, I just didn't, wasn't getting good cards, or maybe, uh, you know, we're playing a game with dice, and you know, it just wasn't rolling the way it should have. Statistically, I should have won. And so I think through all the reasons why, uh, I really, it, I should have won. Um, also, over games of cards, usually, when I lose. Uh, I've said some pretty unkind things uh, to others over a simple game. That's maybe not as funny. <laughs> uh, but honestly, it wasn't until I was married that I started to realize just how self-centered I was uh, when it came uh, to games. And so one night early on in our marriage, Sam and I, were we had some friends over to play games, and we were cleaning up, and um, and I was thinking through, you know, I had lost, so I was thinking through, like, what did I, what did I do? What, what could I have done differently? I could just do undo, like, a couple moves. And I was just thinking out loud about uh, the choices that I made and how maybe if I had just done this different, maybe I would have beaten Sam. And uh, at that point, she stopped cleaning, and she looked at me and said, why can't you just be happy that I won? Now, I assume that not everyone here is as into games as I am. Uh, but I wonder if you can identify with that scenario, whether it's a game or a hobby that you're into, a relationship that you're invested in, the work that you do. Is there something that you have found yourself so wrapped up in your interests that you actually, it actually hurts others? Have you ever been so out to prove yourself that you couldn't take joy in someone else's accomplishments? Have you ever been so self-absorbed that you missed opportunities to love and to bless and serve others? I think we've all found ourselves there before. And so as we look at Luke 10 this morning, we find a lawyer who's in the same boat. He comes with his own plans to trap Jesus, uh, trap Jesus in his words, and to prove himself or to justify himself as a good person. But Jesus uses the now famous parable of the Good Samaritan to expose the self-centeredness and the lack of compassion in the lawyer's life and to show him what it truly means to love others and to put their interests before his own. Only through Christ can we be freed from the trap of justifying ourselves and freely and freed to truly love God and love everyone as neighbors, including our enemies. So let's look at this in context. Uh, we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 10. Uh, previously in, in the book of Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke writes that Jesus had decided he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. So at this point, we find ourselves a chapter in, Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. He's already foretold twice that he will die there. He knows that he is going to the cross. And knowing that his death is on the horizon, he knows that his time with his disciples is short. And so, Last week, I think Pastor Daniel talked a little bit about a bucket list. I wonder if Luke's, uh, this narrative of Jesus traveling to Jerusalem is in a sense Jesus' bucket list with the disciples. These are, in many ways, Luke records uh, some of the most powerful teachings of Jesus, some of the most famous teachings of Jesus, and some of his most famous uh, miracles and acts. And these are the things that he wanted to do, wanted to pass on to the disciples uh, before he went to the cross. And so in Luke 10, we find ourselves with a lawyer coming to test Jesus in verse 25. Now, this is not a lawyer in the sense that we may think of today like an attorney. Uh, this is more of a, a teacher of the law. Uh, you can think of it like a biblical scholar, someone who's very familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And so he has come to test Jesus in the sense of he's, he's kind of set a trap. Uh, he wants to know, will Jesus, all the things he's been saying and teaching, Will he actually honor the Mosaic law? Will he he honor the teachings passed down by Moses? How will he answer my question? But instead, we find that Jesus tests him and turns the tables on him, which is not very uh, uncommon with Jesus. So in in fact, Jesus asks him to summarize the Old Testament law, and and the lawyer does so. Looking at two principles in uh, verse 27, he uses two principles to summarize the entire Old Testament law. Right, he says, we are called to love God with everything that we have, and we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to love the people that God made in his own image. So oftentimes, back in that day, and even today, uh, believers have have used those two principles as really, it is a summary of the 10 commandments and of the Old Testament law. And so Jesus says that this is the kind of life that leads to eternal life. We see that in verse 28. But the key to this interaction, to really understand what's going on in this story, and to understand Jesus' response to the lawyer comes in verse 29. The lawyer is seeking to justify himself. You see, if uh, eternal life is earned by perfectly loving God with everything that we have and loving our neighbor, then he realizes that he falls short of this test. He fails it. No one can do that. And so as as a lawyer... He's thinking maybe there are some legal loopholes that maybe allow us to limit our love or who is our neighbor. And so he asks a simple question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a parable in verses 30 through 35, which many commentators point out is actually his indirect way of showing the lawyer that he's actually asking the wrong question. And this is clear in two things that we're going to look at this morning. First, it's clear in what Jesus does with the parable. And second, in what he says in the parable so first let's look at what jesus does in the parable of the good samaritan jesus gives an expansive and costly picture of what neighbor love looks like at first his story is actually quite relatable and unsurprising in in that uh context and so for uh people of jesus's time uh people living in israel for the jews this would have been a, a very um, Understandable scenario, the road to Jerus- from Jerusalem to Jericho was commonly traveled. So this man sets out on a journey. Many people set out on journeys, travel this road. It's also a road that in that time was known for its dangers, that there were rocky outcroppings, twists and turns in the mountains that were uh, great places for people to lie in wait, for robbers to, lie, uh, to set ambushes, to, uh, to rob people. And that's exactly what happens to the man, right? He's traveling along the road and he, He is assaulted, he is robbed, and left for dead. So at this point, there's really nothing surprising in Jesus' story for the lawyer. Next, we see two men walk by, a priest and a Levite. They pass by. Now, there's lots of speculation over the years about their motives. Maybe they had important business to do. They're important religious people, so maybe they had somewhere to be, some special purpose. Uh, But really, Jesus doesn't give give us the answer. He just says, they see and they pass by on the other side of the road. Still, some say this might not necessarily be surprising to the lawyer. He's not a priest or a Levite. That's kind of, there's like the different religious tribes in, of the Jews in that day, and so he's more in line with the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law, and so he might think, well, of course, you know, a priest and a Levite, they're not going to help, but he's waiting for the lawyer to show up next, and that, is where that Jesus kind of uh, makes a shocking twist in the story because it's not a lawyer or a Pharisee who arrives, maybe one of this man's own tribe to come help the man, but a Samaritan, an enemy. Now for us, this is a bit of a, a cultural disconnect. Um, to understand the the relationship between Jews and Samaritans at this time. Uh, The Samaritans were uh, at that time by Jews, they were called half breeds uh, because they were people from Israel who had intermarried uh, during the exile. Uh, Assyria had placed other people within the borders of Israel and a lot of the Israelites had uh, been forced to move elsewhere. And so there had been intermarriage, there had been kind of a mixing of religions to the point where Samaritans kept part of the Old Testament, they kept the five books of Moses, but they had made some changes. Uh, They had different uh, worship practices, cultic practices that that differed from the Jews, differed from uh, the Old Testament uh, as given by Moses. And so for for many Jews, Samaritans were in a sense, uh, very shameful, a disgrace that they had taken uh, something that God had given them and and altered it. And so even actually, as Jesus is telling the story, Previously in Luke 9, Jesus had actually been rejected by a Samaritan village that he had passed by. He wanted to stop to teach, but because he was a Jew, they did not let him in. And so this kind of animosity, though, we might not, you know, be familiar with, the, with, these, uh, with this scenario. This is something that would have really stood out to the lawyer. Why is the Samaritan coming in, and why is he the one that's helping? And so this twist kind of comes in the parable, a little bit like a punchline to a joke, right? It's a bit unexpected. You thought it was going somewhere else. It's a bit disturbing to the lawyer. See, this is a person who never could be a neighbor, but he's the one who actually displays neighbor neighbor love, which is clear uh, by the lawyer's answer in verse 37. The difference, see, three men walked by, but the difference is that one of them all three saw him, saw this man lying there half dead, right? But only one of them was actually moved to compassion. So the difference between the three is not that, he, that he's the only one who saw, he's the only one who is moved to compassion. And so we see that the Samaritan puts himself in danger, risking his own life to help. You see, we don't actually know that there are, he doesn't actually know that there aren't robbers still waiting, maybe using this man as bait, and they're going to rob someone who stops to help him. And so he puts himself in danger. He spends his time, Right, so he has to either cancel his journey or he's going to be significantly delayed. And wherever, wherever the Samaritan's going, right, he's, he's stopping what he's doing to take care of this man. So he's spending his time, he's spending his physical strength, he tends the man's wounds, he puts the man on his own animal, which means that he has to walk the rest of the way to the inn. He spends his resources... Now, bandages in these days, uh, from what I understand, they didn't have band-aids. They, they used their, uh, often would just tear clothing, maybe even from their own clothes that, that this man is wearing, maybe from a spare set of clothes. But he would basically rend his garments, make bandages to tie up the man's wounds. He, he used his own oil and wine to clean the wounds. And then at the end, he gives two, what is the equivalent in that time of two days' wages with the promise of more if it is needed. And so in a sense, this, this Samaritan, this, this enemy, has really given everything. He, and he, he has shown costly love to a complete stranger. And it's at this point that Jesus then turns back to the lawyer and asks the right question, because it's not about who is our neighbor, but how to be a neighbor. And that's clear in his question of who proved to be a neighbor. Clearly the answer to the lawyer's question is that there are no limits to neighboring. That there're neither like race and ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status, education, all the things that divide us in society don't make someone less of a neighbor. that these are still people made in God's image, but Jesus's point, his focus on is on how to be a neighbor, how to be one who shows love and compassion, how to meet needs at a cost to oneself. So if the lawyer came into this conversation looking to maybe loosen up the definition, of neighbor or what it costs to love, Jesus actually does the opposite. And this is the essence of Jesus's test. The lawyer is now trapped and unable to justify himself. And that is what Jesus is doing with the parable. What he's doing is this is an example of what theologians like John Calvin call the second use of the law. You see the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law in the Hebrew scriptures Uh, theologians talk about how there are three different ways that you can use the laws. The first use is that the Old Testament law can be applied to help keep civil order. Generally, most societies recognize, right, that murder and stealing is not beneficial. And so there are lots of things in the Old Testament law that is actually just applicable to kind of maintaining order. But the second use of the law, what Jesus is doing here, is using the high standards of the Old Testament law as a mirror to reveal how, how short we fall of how God has called us to live. And so the second use of the law was when we compare our lives to God's standards, that we discover that none of us live consistent, perfect, or wholehearted moral lives. <clears throat> the law exposes our sin. And this can be seen in, in throughout the Bible. Uh, there are examples of it being used in different ways like this. Uh, one example in Romans 3, uh, 19 through 20, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, we fail to do the things that God has commanded us to do, and the law exposes us to that. Sometimes we purposely go and do things that we know that we ought not do. We pursue the wrong goals. We chase after self-centered interests. Sometimes we do the right thing, but we do it for selfish motives to look good. We do it begrudgingly because we have to, rather than out of love and compassion like what Jesus is illustrating for us here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so while we might, like the lawyer, think of ourselves as good people, it is actually only when we limit the definition of things like love or neighbor. So Jesus' teaching here actually smashes the lawyer's delusions of self-justification. And if we're honest, for us here this morning, ours too. An example of this in my own life is uh, I, I really dislike, I mean, this is probably true for most people, but I really dislike being interrupted, and it's probably something you can relate to. But when I'm busy at, with work or something I'm focused on, um, I really don't like to have to stop or to lose like my train of thought. Uh, and so when my kids come and interrupt, uh, or maybe my wife has something really important, uh, something urgent has come up, and she, and she comes, uh, I can really feel just like uh, stressed out, my spirit drop, or my uh, anger inside. Um, yeah, every time in 2020 that I had my blood pressure taken, it was, it was really high working from home. Uh, I don't like being interrupted. <laughs> but honestly, what it is, though, is that oftentimes it's the interruptions that are revealing the sin in my own heart, and that I am tempted. It's revealing that I'm tempted to justify myself by my work and by my productivity. So I feel like I need to get things done and people get in the way. <clears throat> it's, it's actually become kind of a, a bit of a joke around our, our kitchen table because at dinner, oftentimes we do uh, highs and lows as a family at the end of the day. You know, what was something you liked from the day? Things what was something that was hard. And uh, I didn't realize I was doing this until one day Sam was like, let me guess, Stephen, uh, was your high that you got a lot of stuff done, but your low is that you didn't get everything done that you thought you would get done today? And that's honestly what I was thinking. And I didn't realize how often I say that. <laughs> a lot of nights it's like, well, I, I got these things done, and you know, there's this other thing that I didn't get to, or this, this other thing <laughs> came up that was really urgent, so I'm glad I got to take care of that, but uh, you know, I, that, I'll have to do that tomorrow. And I said that so often that I, I think what it reveals is that um, it's really, I can find my self-justification of, of my day, of my, how I'm spending my life in the things that I get done and in my productivity. And the funny thing is, uh, I'm pretty rude when I get interrupted at times. And so my productivity is not, my self-justification is not making me a better neighbor. And if I'm honest, I also interrupt other people. Because, you know, what I'm doing is probably really important. So, um, <laughs> so spiritually speaking, honestly, I would say I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just the priest and Levite who's too busy to stop for the concerns of other people. In many ways, I, I would say spiritually speaking, I'm like the man on the side of the road. Because I've found I'm unable to change my own heart. That I can't make myself a more loving uh, and better neighbor. And that's my condition. And I think for all of us, that, that's our condition that we are the man on the side of the road. And if Luke ended here, it would be really hard to call this this, uh, this really good news. And that's what gospel mean, means, right? We're going through the gospel according to Luke. Gospel means good news, and that's not good news. <laughs> seeing our sin is not good news. But thankfully, as we as you look at the full book of Luke, as you look at the Bible, the teaching is that the goal of this second use of the law, of seeing the, the, the law as a mirror that um, exposes our sin, is that it actually also points us to Christ. So the, the gospel accounts, including Luke, give a picture of Jesus as the good Samaritan who, who displays God's, God's costly love in the way he lives his life, the way he spends his time, his resources, uses his power, and ultimately the way he gives his life in service of others dying for us. He lived the perfect life which we fail to live And he has eternal life in himself, which is what the lawyer came looking for. He does this for us, his enemies, though in our sin we have rebelled against him. But because Jesus has eternal life in himself, he shares it with those who come to him. We cannot justify ourselves enough to earn life with God. We must come to Christ who can give it. One commentator, uh, Philip Ryken, even notes the hint of this fact in the lawyer's own question, which somehow he misses out on. In in verse 25, if you'll remember, he asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Which is kind of a funny question because inheritances, inheritances generally aren't earned, right? It's something that's given to you as a gift. And yet he's asking how to earn it. And Jesus is pointing out that it can't be earned. Instead, that we, like the lawyer, are pointed to our need for Christ's perfect life lived on our behalf His atoning death died in our place for our sin, and his resurrection life offered to those who come in faith, recognizing that we cannot earn it ourselves. So the parable of the Good Samaritan points us to Christ so we can experience freedom from the burden of having to justify ourselves. Christ is the one who justifies us. So we all come in here at different points this morning, uh, maybe different points of our spiritual journeys and if, if any of you are here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here and that you're seeking answers with us and learning with us about, uh, about the person of Jesus as we go through Luke. But if you're in this room and you're a Christian or not a Christian, the reality is that if you are looking to your own actions or morals to justify yourself to be a good enough person before God, this text is pointing out the fact that that task is futile. The solution to our inadequacy is the same either way is to trust in Christ who is both just and the justifier of us so you will never experience freedom from the weight on your shoulders until you experience the forgiveness and acceptance that comes from his grace alone okay i so said we're going to look at two things so that's just the first part that's what jesus does so really quickly there's also what jesus says what jesus does with the parable is to show the lawyer and us our need for a savior, but Jesus certainly doesn't mean less than what he says. It would be really easy to end the sermon here and just say, great, we all need Jesus, and then we'll just move on with the service, but once we realize that our project for self-justification is a dead end, we can easily stop there, but this is only the first part of the good news of Jesus, and this is what he has freed us from, from self-justification. However, to do justice to what Jesus is saying here in the text, we must recognize that he has also freed us to something. To f- we are now free in Christ to live as we ought to. Twice Jesus has actually left room in this passage for a command to do something. We see that in verses 28 and uh, 37. Right, the, It's not that the ethical life is un- unimportant to Jesus. And as his followers, we are actually still called to love God and to love neighbor. We can't just say, well, I can't. And, and that's that. But we're still called to that. However, it is not done to justify ourselves before God, to try and prove that we are good people, it's actually an overf- out of an overflow of God's love and acceptance of us that flows through us in service for others. Going back to the, uh, the uses of the Old Testament law, I had mentioned there are three uses, but I, I don't know if you noticed, I only gave you two, but there's, there is a third use of the law, and that is it acts as a guide to the Christian life, pointing out the way that we, now that we are in relationship with God, how do we live in that relationship. Jesus is not only the perfect neighbor, but he actually is at work in our lives, making us, transforming us to be neighbors to others. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, he writes of this too, as he writes of his own service to others. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised so what we see here is that the christian life really we we are to be um spurred on by god's god's love we don't earn god's love but as god loves us and as god accepts us that the love of christ controls us it impels us to act to actually serve others that we stop living for ourselves. We recognize that we have been and that we need rescuing from that. But actually, it frees us to live for God and to bless those he made. So we cannot live the Christian life by our own strength. We need Christ's love and power to love in more than a finite way and especially to love people like our enemies. We experience his love when we receive the gospel message and the spirit makes his home in us, giving us new power. Because we have been shown mercy, now we can be ones who show mercy. So an il- il- illustration of this that we've experienced in our, for our family is when we moved here to Sacramento about three and a half years ago, we were moving from overseas. It was a very hard transition for us, very sudden. Uh, and some friends actually gifted us with some free counseling, um, some marriage counseling, and even just could meet with the counselor one-on-one as well. And if you've ever gone to counseling, it's, it's not cheap. Um, But we were going through a hard transition, and so for our friends, they reached out because for them, they had reached a point in their marriage where things were really tough, and they needed help, and so they had started going to counseling, but they actually, it was really helping, but they couldn't afford to keep going, and so someone saw that need and said, keep going to counseling, send me the bill, I will pay for that, and so they were able to continue to go to counseling, their marriage is in a much better spot, and um, and they were so blessed by that that they decided as a couple that in the future, if they knew other people who could really benefit from that but couldn't afford it, that they would cover that. And so when they heard that we were coming, coming from overseas, that we were going through a hard transition, they said that they wanted to gift us with that same gift that they had been giving, given. And so because they had received grace and mercy, they were eager to show it to others, even at a cost to themselves. So now as Christians, our lives are characterized uh, by his work, are they are to be characterized by his work in us, making us, Jesus making us into better and better neighbors who love God and love others. Because only in Christ can we find the resources to truly love unconditionally, extravagantly, sacrificially, even loving those who are our enemies. So the parable of the Good Samaritan points us to Christ so we can experience freedom to truly love our neighbors with compassion. So I want to ask you this morning, what opportunities has the Lord given you to go and to do likewise? Perhaps it's someone that you'll see on the way home this afternoon and being willing to stop and be inconvenienced in order to help them. Perhaps it's seeking a way to bless an actual neighbor, the one that annoys you, (laughs) and finding a way to to bless them. Or maybe it's actively trying to bring healing in areas of personal or societal brokenness that you see around you, crossing cultures, crossing those things that divide us from others, and saying, how can I love this person because they are my neighbor? How will you take steps of faith to obey this call, to love others this week, while trusting that it is Christ, he is the one he is, who is working in and through you? In summary, what Jesus does and says through the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us about two aspects of how he saves us. Only through Christ can we be freed from the trap of justifying ourselves and freed to truly love God and love everyone as neighbors, including our enemies. As we end here, I want to just I think Paul captures just a picture of this Christian life very well in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Christ, you are justified and made right before God. His rescue is a gift that you could never earn. And now in him, you have good works to do, to walk in the way of love and to care for your neighbor in the strength that he provides. As Jesus calls the lawyer, called the lawyer to love and to love those made in his image, even his enemies, so he says to you, his followers, to be empowered by his spirit and to go and do likewise. So we'll pray real quick before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for sending Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, for his gracious teachings and his sacrificial death, and that he rose to new life, and that he offers that eternal life to us. Would you please uh, turn our hearts away from our, our endless and empty pursuits of self-justification? Teach us to depend on your grace, that is freely given, that we cannot earn. Would you fill us and empower us this morning with your Holy Spirit to love you with everything that we have, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to put the interests of others ahead of our own. We love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.